glory and for our good. And so even though these minor prophets have lots and lots of darkness, even though these minor prophets have lots and lots of suffering, there is, as we've noted, in each one there is a glimmer, there is a flicker of hope. And we need to be able to look and see those glimmers and flickers of hope. Because while we do not live in the same kind of time and in the same place as the Israelites and Judites did during these prophets, we know suffering. We know hardships. And our hardships and our sufferings look different, but we still know them. We still have physical pains and hurts. We still have diseases and ends of life kinds of things. We still have brokenness in our families. We know struggle. We know pain. And while sometimes it's easy for us to see the big truth of God's glory ringing out through all of those things, we need to be reminded of the flicker of hope. We need to be reminded of the small beam of glorious hope that shines out through the darkness. That's what happens in the minor prophets. The minor prophets, the minor prophets, they they are all about waiting. That's what this Advent season is. Waiting, preparing, looking forward in anticipation. That's what we find all through the minor prophets. They waited, they anticipated. We we understand anticipation. Even this week, you understood anticipation. As you looked outside and saw the snow flurries continue and the wind continue to blow and the drifts get bigger and bigger and you waited for the storm to stop. You looked out your window waiting for the snow plow to go by. You understand anticipation. This is a week before Christmas. This is a week where you, you know anticipation, especially you can remember as a child waiting for Christmas break to come longing for Christmas to arrive. I think I've shared this story before, but I can, I can vividly remember laying in bed on Christmas Eve because we were a Christmas morning family. I can remember laying in bed on Christmas Eve and, and my hands just shaking and, and I called it my hand mess because I was so excited I couldn't control them. You laugh because you probably had a hand mess too. We understand anticipation. And for us, we don't have hand messes on Christmas Eve anymore, probably. But we know anticipation. Whether it's, whether it's the thought, the idea that you're about to have uh, another surgery and a rehab and a recovery, and that's going to make everything better. Or... You think about your children and raising your children and you think about how the last kid soon is going to be out of diapers or in school or in college or out of my basement, whatever the case may be. And you think about it and you anticipate it and you hope for it. And yet all of those things pale in comparison to the anticipation of what the prophets we're telling about. The prophets longed for a king. They longed for the perfect, ultimate ruler 
that God had promised to them. They longed for a Messiah. They longed for a final once and for all redeemer. They longed for communion with a holy God. They were hoping for those things and they were anticipating those things and they were declaring those things. And yet in their declarations, in in the ways that they share those prophecies with us, they, they, they could not see everything perfectly and clearly. They saw them dimly. And in fact, one of the things that happens as you read through the minor prophets, and we've talked about this a little bit, especially in Zechariah, one of the things that happens is the prophets were looking in the distance and they could see on the hilltops, they could see these promises. They could see the king. They could see the Messiah. They could see the eternity. They could see the kingdom of God. They could see those things in the future. But what they couldn't see was that they came in different times. They were anticipating the birth of a savior. That came, but it didn't come. It didn't come with a new king. It didn't come with a new heaven and new earth. That was a different hilltop farther in the distance. And so as we read through these minor prophets, it's difficult sometimes for us to distinguish between what was one of the closer hilltops that they could see, the birth of Messiah, the coming of Jesus, and one of the farther ones, which is still yet to come, even for us. Malachi. Malachi is the last of the prophets that we find here in Scripture, and he, he comes at a time when the people had been hearing the promises but they weren't coming true in the ways and in the time frame that they had hoped and anticipated that they might come. Malachi was probably written somewhere around 430 B.C., 430 years before Christ comes, and yet it was 300 years probably after Micah, the prophet that we looked at last week. If you remember... The Amos and Micah, they would have been prophets who, who spoke to both the countries of Israel and Judah. The countries of Israel and Judah had, had divided following Solomon's reign. And before the Assyrians came and drove out the northern tribes and, and drove away that northern kingdom of Israel, Amos was a prophet from Judah into Israel. Micah was also a prophet from Judah into Israel, and they were prophets of that pre-Assyrian invasion. Zechariah was one of the prophets we looked at a couple of weeks ago. Zechariah was a prophet who came much, much later. He came around 520 B.C. The northern kingdom has been destroyed. The Assyrians came in, destroyed the northern kingdom. The southern kingdom lasted uh, longer than the northern kingdom, but finally the Babylonians come. They drive out the southern kingdom. They drive uh, the the tribe of Judah and the tribe of Levites. They drive them out of Jerusalem. They destroy the temple. They send off the people, or some of the people at least, into exile, into Babylon. And And then, in God's grace and in God's mercy, the people begin to return. They begin to come back from exile, or some of them come back 
And they, they come back to build the temple and to, and to rebuild parts of Jerusalem. And, and Zechariah was a prophet who then began to share with them during that rebuilding phase. He, he would come and, 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 and part of his prophecy was even that they were not, that they were, they were building their homes instead of building the temple. They were worried about themselves and not about the place of worship. And Zechariah comes during the rebuild from the exile, but Malachi here, this last minor prophet, comes even a hundred years after Zechariah. The people have come back from exile. God had promised this place, this land to them, and they had high hopes for it. But now, 100 years after Zechariah, there wasn't everything that they had hoped for. The things that they had anticipated, the hope for this new Jerusalem, the building of this new temple, this perfect redeemer and king that they had been hoping for and waiting for has still not come and still not arrived. And the people, people during Malachi's prophecy Instead, had a foreign government that still reigned over them. They had a temple, but it was so much less and so much smaller than what it had been when Solomon had originally built it. It was a replica, really, of the temple that they knew and loved, and it was empty. God's presence was not there in the way that it had been before. Corruption and injustice and poverty ruled over the land and the people were tired and weary and hopeless and cynical. And we understand those things, right? When the things that we have been waiting for and anticipating don't come in the ways that we had hoped they would come, when the snowplow goes by but the road is still icy, when Christmas comes and we still have those things that we want, when the surgery comes and our rehab and our pain lead to still more pain and struggling, when our kids move out of diapers or school or the basement and yet parenting is still hard, We've been waiting and anticipating and excited about all of these things, and yet they still have not come in the ways that we had hoped they would come. That's the people during the day of Malachi. They were cynical. They were hopeless. And while they were there at the temple doing the things that God had called them to do, they were walking through the motions and they weren't doing them in the ways that God had called them to do it. In fact, Malachi at one point talks to them, prophesies in in chapter two about the sacrifices that they're bringing. They're, They're walking through the motions of bringing a sacrifice to the temple just as God had called them to do, except that the sacrifices that they're bringing are are the lame animals from their herd. They're sick, they're blind, in fact, Malachi says. You're bringing, you're bringing the worthless parts as parts of your worship. They're walking through the motions, but they're hopeless and weary and cynical. 
And so Malachi. Malachi starts, in fact, if you look at the beginning of Malachi right away in chapter 1, it starts with Malachi giving this prophecy. He says in in chapter 1, verse 2, I have loved you, says the Lord. But you say, how have you loved us? That's cynicism. That's weariness. That's hopelessness. God says, I love you. And our response to that is, how have you done that? How have you loved us? What have you done for me? What my, my hopes, all the things that I've been excited about, all the things that I have been anticipating, all of the things that I have been dreaming about, all the things that we as a people have been waiting for for hundreds of years, they still have not come true. You say you love us us, but how have you loved us? This is the cycle all the way through Malachi. God makes a statement, and the people disagree with the statement, and then God replies. God gives a response to their dispute. I've loved you, says the Lord, and they say, how have you loved us? What have you done for us? And he says to them, I have chosen you. I have chosen you. You are my people. That's how I love you. I have chosen you and I have made these promises to you. And then Malachi continues on. God says, I've chosen you, but you do not live like a people who are chosen. You do not live like my treasured possession. You don't live like my chosen people. And so they go through this series of disputes. The fourth of those disputes comes at the end of chapter two. That's what I want us to read together this morning. Malachi chapter two, beginning in verse 17. It says, you have wearied Lord with your words. But you say, how have we wearied him? By saying, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Or by asking, where is the God of justice? God's response, behold, I send my messenger, and he will repair the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. They will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old, as in the former years. Then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired workers in his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. Malachi says, 
you have wearied the Lord by saying, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord and he delights in them. You have wearied the Lord. How have they wearied the Lord? They wearied him by saying, God, you must love those who don't love you. You must love those who do evil. You must love them more than you love us because they're doing well and we are not doing well. We are your chosen people, they say. It doesn't feel like we're your chosen people. Everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord. He delights in them because he doesn't delight in us. They're so disillusioned. They're so cynical. They're so let down and disappointed. They're so woe is me that they long for the God of justice. They long for the day of the Lord. Do you remember a few weeks ago when we were in Amos? In Amos too, they longed for the day of the Lord. They, they looked forward to the day of the Lord. And Amos, in that whole eight and a half chapters of really darkness, Amos said, you do not want the day of the Lord. You do not want that dark day to come. You do not want that. Here they say, where is the God of justice? We want him to come. We want the God of justice. We want to see his answer. They don't understand the true darkness that comes in the midst of that. So God responds. They say, where is the God of justice? And God responds, behold, Behold, I send my messenger and he will prepare the way for me. He says, get ready. Behold, here's the announcement. Behold, I'm going to send my messenger. There's all kinds, there's all kinds of fun things in the language that's used in this verse right here. As Malachi shares it, behold, I send my messenger, it alludes back to the verse you saw on the screen this morning as we started in, in Luke, which is actually a, a recitation or, or a requote that comes from Isaiah chapter 40, a prophecy that there was uh, someone to come that was going to prepare the way for the Messiah that was to come. It's the, it's the passage that was used in Luke that was on the screen today. It's the passage that's used in all the Gospels that points to John the Baptist coming as a messenger before Jesus. But it also, another fun thing here is that this word messenger also is actually the word Malachi. Behold, I prepare, I send my messenger, I send Malachi, and he is going to prepare the way for you this message that you hear even from him, as a play on words, this message that you hear from him comes from me. And even more, as you look at the language, the idea in this messenger is that the messenger himself is God. The way the phrasing of those words work together, it gives it a God appearance in all of the rest of Scripture. And so as we read this, we see that, yes, it's alluding back to Isaiah chapter 40 about the promise of someone to come who is John the Baptist or will be John the Baptist. It also 
says this message that comes from Malachi is the word of the Lord. And then it also says, behold, I myself am coming to prepare a way for me to come. He's saying here in Malachi. The king is going to arrive, and so my messenger has gone out to blow the trumpet, to widen the road, to make way for the king to come. This one that you seek, this one that you delight in, Malachi says sarcastically. The one that you delight in, the one in whom you delight. And when he comes, there will be an announcement, but he will come suddenly and quickly and unexpectedly. Behold, I send my messenger and he will prepare the way for me. And then he says in verse 2, he says, this messenger's going to come. The king is going to come. And then he says in verse 2, but who can endure the day of his coming and who can stand when he appears? Who can do it? Who can survive? Who is going to be okay when the king finally arrives? When the God of justice that you are asking for, when he shows up, who can stand? We talk about this often. We've talked about it every week in this series. Because we, like the Israelites, like the Judites, we think too little of our sin and we think too much of who we are. We think we can come before the God of justice. We think that we're really not all that bad. And yet Malachi reminds us that who can endure the day of his coming and who can stand when he appears? We think we're ready for the day of the Lord. We're given glimmers of the hope that we need. We were given glimmers in Amos and Zechariah and Micah that there's a booth of David that's going to be rebuilt, Amos told us. Zechariah told us that we would have our filthy garments removed and would be given spotless ones. Micah, last week, as we looked at Micah, we read, Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He again will have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all of our sins into the depth of the sea. There are glimmers of hope, but we dare not look forward to the day of the Lord and to the God of justice on our own. We need help. We need help to become the ones that he has called us to be we need help. We need help to be the pure and holy ones that he has called us to be. And so that's why he says, when he comes, he's going to come like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. Two great illustrations of what God is doing in and among his people. Fuller soap. I don't know about you. I don't know much about fuller soap until I did some research on it this week. They didn't have Tide Pods 
back in 450 BC. Instead, they had an alkali lye mixture that they would put in water, and they would soak their dirty clothing in this alkali lye mixture. That, that lye would, would break up the dirt. The dirt would still be on the garment, but it would be broken down enough that when they took it out of the water and hung it up, they could beat it with a broom or a stick or something, and the dirt would be shaken off the garment. That's what would make it clean. And Malachi is saying he's going to come like a, refined, like a fuller's soap. He's going to come and he's going to break up the dirt. But, but in order to get that dirt off, it's going to take some beating. It's going to take some suffering. It's going to take some hardship. He also says he's going to come like a refiner's fire. Refiner's fire, we have a, a, probably a better picture of. Precious metals get taken and they get, get melted down until they're, until they're hot, molten liquid. And when you do that, the, the impurities that are inside that precious metal begin to come to the top of the liquid. And so a refiner would, would get the metal really, really, really hot. It would put lots and lots of, of heat on it, lots and lots of pressure on it, and it would melt, and those impurities would come to the top, and he would, he would scoop them out off the top of the metal. And the impurities would come up, the dross would continue to rise to the top, and he would peel them off until, until what they say is that the refiner can look into the metal, into the melted, molten, molten metal, and see his own reflection. And it's then that he knows that they're pure. Does that sound like what God is doing to us? Conforming us more and more into the image of Jesus? oftentimes through pain and suffering through lots and lots of heat. He goes on to tell us, he sits as a refiner and a purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi. He will refine them like gold and silver. He will purify us. There's hope in that for us because we know of our impurities. I know about the dross that's in my life. I see the dirt that has not been beaten away. I know that I need help to be holy. And he says, there is hope. In fact, he goes on to say in verse 5, he says, we're hopeless except that I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be there in that day of judgment, he says, and I will be a swift witness. He will be, he will be the judge. He will be the purifier. He will be the witness. He holds all of the roles. He is both the author and the perfecter of our faith. He is the beginning and the end. It's all about him. He will be the judge but he will also be the witness beside us. We have hope 
because he sends a messenger for us. There's one last thing I want you to see in the midst of this, something that I had not totally comprehended, I don't think, until even I looked at it and saw it this week. In Malachi chapter 3, he says, as God is speaking through Malachi, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. He will suddenly come to his temple. So I already told you, they've, they've rebuilt the temple in Malachi's time. It's smaller. It's not nearly what it was when Solomon was the king. It's a much lesser temple, but it's there. It's the temple that will still be there when Jesus comes. But it's, it's smaller. It's not as glorious. It's not as great as it once was. But even that is not the biggest difference. If you remember... If you remember in your Israelite history, when when God gives instructions to Moses about the tabernacle, they build the tabernacle, and what happens? God moves into it. He physically moves in. He shows like a cloud moving into the building. I am with you. And then, then the temple is built. Solomon's temple, and Solomon comes and and on that day of dedication prays, and what happens? God's spirit physically moves into the temple. It's there. They see it, they know it. Now God is, is not just there, we know that. God is in all places at all times. But the Israelites saw God move in. They knew he was with them. And then the Assyrians come, the Babylonians come, the kingdoms divide, the temple is destroyed. God's presence is gone. The place that they had gone to, the place that they knew he lived in that building was gone. And now they come back and Zerubbabel builds the temple and it's there during Zechariah's time. It's there a hundred years later during Malachi's time, but it's just a replica and it's empty. God's presence has not moved back into it. God's spirit They cannot sense it and see it and know it in the way that they could before. It's an empty shell. And part of what they're crying out about is saying, God, we, you say you love us, but we don't see it. We don't know it. We don't know you in the way that we used to. And Malachi says, he's going to come back. He's going to come back to the temple. And he does exactly that. In Luke chapter 2, I want you to turn there and look at it. The worship team is going to come to and help us as we look at Luke chapter 2. But in Luke chapter 2, this is a story that you know well. Starting in verse 22, it says, When the time for their purification according to the law of Moses, they brought him to Jerusalem, Jesus, to present him to the Lord, and to offer a sacrifice according to what it said in the law of the Lord. In verse 25, Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple, the empty shell, 
And the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law. And he took him up in his arms and he blessed God. He blessed, he took Jesus there at the temple and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples. A light for revelation to the Gentiles and for your glory to your people. If you continue to read on, you see that there's another prophetess there, Anna, who also has been waiting at the temple for God to come. And he does. He does. In flesh and blood, he comes in the person of Jesus. Here in Luke 2, it's no longer a flicker of hope. It's no longer a small beam of glory that we see any longer. Simeon says, this is a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for the glory to your people Israel. It's not just a flicker of hope anymore. For those of you who have been weary of waiting, for those of you who have grown cynical, for those of you who have felt hopeless and tired, for those of you that feel like you have spent so long in the darkness, the light for revelation to the Gentiles, for the glory of the people of Israel has come. The Lord of hosts has come. The one in whom you delight has come, and he is a light. In fact, You've probably turned now, but if you go back to Malachi chapter 4, he ends his book with this. For behold, the day is coming. That day that is coming will set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. And then he says in verse 2 of chapter 4, But for you who fear my name in that day, the one that is to come, the farthest hilltop, in that day, you who fear my name, The sun, S-U-N, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings and you shall go out leaping like calves from the stall. It's not a flicker of light. It is the sun, S-U-N, the sun of righteousness. It's the brightest of all brights. It's not just a small beam of hope. For you who are weary and cynical and hopeless and tired, there is hope and it has come in the person of Jesus. Stand with me this morning as we sing together. Oh, come, all you unfaithful Weak and unstable, come, know you are not alone. Oh, come, barren and waiting ones, weary of praying, come, see what your God has done. Christ is born, Christ is born, Christ is born for you. 
His unspoken come, taste of His perfect love. Oh, come, guilty and hiding ones, there is no need to run. See what your God has done. today in the book of Titus it says for the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation for all people training us to renounce ungodliness and world and passions to live self-controlled upright and godly lives in this present age waiting for our blessed hope the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ amen thank you for coming